Open your Bible to Psalm 110. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 602. Um, 600 plus 2. What I'm going to do now is uh, a couple people have asked me, are we going to return to Paul's letter to the Colossians? And, and that is our plan. Um, Lord willing, Lord, it brings snow. Um, it has been a longer break. And today, I'm taking our attention to Psalm 110 because in many ways it's the, it's the powerful engine in the letter of the Colossians itself. And we're about to come to where Paul um, he unfurls it as the work of the Lord Jesus. So here, God's word, Psalm 110. Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Offer prayer with me. <clears throat> Father, you've sent your word. This word you framed the world. By this word you brought peace. By this word we have been called and we hear and we listen. We ask that you work in our hearts by your word, by your preached word. That you would glorify him by enriching us with praise and life from him.
Christians, hear the word of the Lord. Sit at my right hand. You are a priest forever. Christians, listen. King David's Lord is bringing a salvation beyond imagination and beyond contesting. Psalm 110 was given to Old Testament Israel as a song of marveling expectation and longing. In the New Testament, Psalm 110 is the single most quoted Old Testament passage. Again and again, more than 30 times, the New Testament writers point to it. But not as a promise that God will fulfill. No, they trumpet a present reality. King David's Lord is bringing a salvation beyond imagination and a victory beyond contesting. In the Gospels, Psalm 110 is the final sermon of Jesus' public ministry. In the weeks leading up to that final Passover, Jesus was publicly challenged again and again by the religious leaders, Pharisees, priests, scribes. Jesus ended those attempts at publicly refuting him with Psalm 110 from Matthew. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. When Jesus displays Psalm 110, the discussions are over. There are only two implications from his silencing of his opposers. Their plot for his death and the victory of his resurrection. When David first put this song on the lips of God's people, the nation was in a springtime of renewal. The generations after the Exodus rebelled and squandered decade after decade. Unfaithful Saul was a horrendous and fitting king. But God did not abandon his people. He raised up David. But in Psalm 110, the oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord declared greater things would come. Despite David's own ugly sin and its ugly echoes in this, his family, God raised up Solomon. Even during the summertime of Solomon's wisdom and glory, Psalm 110 put on the lips of God's people a song, a marvel, a promise, excelling all the excellence 
that summer, David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. You are a priest forever. Two generations. Solomon was far better and yet no better at all than David. The book of Kings, first and second, begins with that Solomonic summer. But the other 35 chapters fade into autumn. Truly long, gray fall. People and kings are no better than the squabble and infidelity of the book of Judges. God's law and God's promises were squandered and often appear to have been a faded memory turned into superstition. There are seasons of remembering and repentance, but they're like building a warm fire as cold winter approaches. There were always embers and coals, and fresh fuel would be piled on still. Winter was lonely. As God's people were unfaithful, the kingdoms, kings themselves sometimes as good as Solomon and mostly just as bad. The surrounding nations invaded and plundered God's people. The nations bullied and taxed the people holding God's covenant. Did the people sing Psalm 110 then? Did they sing with greater wonder and surprise than in the days of David and Solomon? Did they sing with longing, with the clarity of knowing your sin and the confusion of how your sin shapes all around you? Was Psalm 110 forgotten, left, written, and available, but ignored like the law? The book of Kings was written to be read in deep winter. The original audience were God's people in exile. God sent the armies of Babylon to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, his temple, and to send the people, his people, the people of the promised land, off to Babylon. The priests were cut down. The book of Kings ends the last Davidic king, David's son, the future of David's dynasty, released from prison in far off Babylon. But he remained in exile, a guest <coughs> of the Babylonian court, sort of a winter decoration. Did Jehoiakim king of Judah, ever sing this song of his forefather? Did he marvel to sing that a man like him could, quote, rule in the midst of your enemies? He lived in the midst of his enemies. Not a prisoner, but in only the most polite way. Did he quietly, or only when in careful privacy, sing as he raised his voice? Is this a thing you mustn't be heard? Did he sing 
He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And Jehoiakim's mouth. Was this a song of hope or joy or bitter and bitter longing? Winter is cold and it bites. Whatever his faith, whatever his repentance, whatever his joy, he could not look around himself and behold, King David's Lord is bringing us salvation beyond imagination and a victory beyond contesting. The two declarations to David's Lord are present tense. Sit at my right hand. You are a priest. But all the psalm's action is future tense. The Lord did not abandon his covenant. He did not abandon Israel. He gave them something of another spring. He brought them back from exile. He brought them back to the promised land. The temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. The law became cherished and bulky in the life of Israel. The law and the prophets were read, Sabbath to Sabbath in worship. The Psalms became truly the song book of the nations. They, the people, the families, sang out the wonder and the longing of Psalm 110 with regularity. Briefly, they had kings again, far worse than David, only underscoring that longing for the coming of David's Lord. Then the Romans came, and they had no king, no longer. They were bullied by the empire, taxed by the empire, ruled by the empire. Even their high priests were appointed with the approval of Rome and under the patronage of Rome. They had the temple and the annual feast of the temple, but the Aaronic priesthood established by Moses it was corrupted. Only better than nothing. What did they think then? Singing, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Greater than David was promised. An even greater priest was promised. Still, like Jehoiakim, they could not look around and behold all the action of Psalm 110 was very obviously in the future tense. The Lord did not the Lord did not abandon his people. Christians, listen. King David's Lord is bringing a salvation beyond imagination a victory beyond contesting. The Lord Jesus is David's Lord. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said that Psalm 110 was now, 
was fulfilled at Pentecost. This Jesus raised up, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend in the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus was a blood descendant of David. He willingly accepted when his hearers believed in him and called him son of David. And they had reason to say that. God promised never to abandon the royal line of David. The prophets spoke of the return from exile as gathered around a second David. David had fought off the nation's and restored the promised land to God's people. His son could do the same with the Romans. Surely Jesus could be a king like David. Yes, and amen, but more, far more, salvation beyond imagination. This is not only David's son by blood, but David's Lord by the incarnation. This is the one who eternally has been in the Father's embrace, the Father's own word, the song of the singer. He has come and done the work of a faithful king, better than David, better than Solomon, better than royal Adam. After he has faithfully done the work, lived the life, and died the death required a sinful man, he rightly is exalted at the right hand of God. He sits until his enemies are his footstool. And Psalm 110 does show a king, a lord, greater than David. His scepter will go out from Zion. The promised land is too small for David's lord. He is greater. David restored and revived the nation of Israel. This king's rule goes far beyond Zion to the womb of the morning. Do you see the far horizon? Where the dawn first appears? David's Lord's rule reaches far beyond the rising sun to the furthest far-flung lands. And what does this Lord's power gather up? The dew of your youth will be yours. All the pinpoint droplets across the landscape, each tiny shine of brilliance, surely they are as many as the stars promised to Abraham, or the grains of dew upon the seashore. But the dew appears from nowhere. The dew is like creation from nothing, like the manna that fell as dew upon Israel in the wilderness. From the sin, folly, and death of the sinful nations, this king's scepter draws up myriad, bright, Refreshment. It is the dew of your youth. 
either reflection of Jesus' resurrected virility. Oh, what he does is accomplished with all the strength of a young man, a man younger than death. Or it's an expression that each drop count the drops. The full horizon past it, but each drop is a newborn and virile believer. These droplets are his people, his people among the nations, nations which Ephesians 2 describes as, quote, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2 explains, beyond anything David ever did, Jesus came to the nations and preached peace. Only this preaching, only his scepter sent out from Zion brings forth the dew. And what is the dew? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Notice the Psalm's first verse. The Lord, the custom of our translation, capitals, that is Yahweh of Mount Sinai. The Lord says to my Lord, lowercase, the ordinary term for a master or superior, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It is the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, who sends the scepter. And the scepter of royal authority is the Holy Spirit working by Christ's word. The ordinary wicked, people who dwell in the shadow of death, nations with guilt beyond their understanding. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they come to him freely. The slaves of sin are set free in faith. And they are dressed in holy garments. The word that justifies is the word that sanctifies. David's Lord brings not only truth for liars and righteousness for the wicked, but life from the dead and reverence from scoffers. Those dressed only in shame by faith in Christ are dressed now in holiness, putting on Christ and being like him. How can this be? How could Jehoiakim hear this? David, we can understand marveling. Jehoiakim, to hear this in faith, he could not be holy. But faith, here is God's promise, here is God's word. And Peter's there. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. How can this be? David was not only a king, but the king of God's chosen nation. The nation where God put his dwelling, his house, the temple. This was the place of sacrifice and atonement, the promise of forgiveness, and the procedures of atonement were carried out by the appointed Aaronic priesthood. 
this fail. David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a new order of priests after the order of Melchizedek. Under Moses, the king of Israel was forbidden from taking up the work of the priesthood. In Leviticus, men tried to usurp the priesthood. Fire came forth from God and consumed them with the incense they were offering. In 2 Samuel, the pious Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant, protected, and he was struck dead. Long after David, in the book of Chronicles, King Uzziah presumed the right to offer incense in the temple, and God struck him with leprosy. The priesthood was not for other men. One did not appoint himself. It was not even for kings, not even for David. So precious was the work of the priesthood that King David's psalms are full of metaphors from the priesthood to describe his own devotion and ambition. Still, David was not a priest. He relied on the sons of Aaron. David was no perfect king. Sadly, that priesthood proved insufficient. What happened? The people were too wicked. Even with promises and sacrifices, their sin dragged summer down to barren winter. How could Israel be saved? Reaching beyond imagination, how could the godless nations be rescued? How could they spring up in holy garments? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, David's Lord, this greater king, is a priest. Like the priest who blessed Abraham, received God's tithes from Abraham, and gave to Abraham bread and wine from God's table. This mysterious Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is like the covenant made with Abraham. His work is stronger than Moses. He blesses more profoundly than the curses of Moses. The failure of Israel under the covenant of Moses did not destroy the covenant with Abraham. And the insufficiency of the Mosaic priesthood was overcome by this new Melchizedek. This is the primary burden of the letter of the Hebrews. Psalm 110 is quoted repeatedly as the argument moves from the first quote, chapter 1, verse 3, to the last quote of the same text in chapter 10, verse 12. Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Aaronic priesthood set aside, insufficient. Jesus' sacrifice and intercession with his own blood, overcome the guilt and curse and domination of sin. Listen from Hebrews 10. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The wicked from the nations rise up like the dew from the womb of mourning because the incarnate Son gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. The longing of believing Israel is fulfilled because the promise of faithful Yahweh is fulfilled. The law clearly expressed and forgiveness promised are not enough to save sinners. Understand, faith does not make salvation work. To the contrary, the saving work of Christ makes faith by the proclamation of David the Lord. The worst, the least, the most unreliable. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is not only by his divine nature that Jesus excels David, but by his divine sacrifice for sins. For the sake of simplicity, I, I will pass over the day of wrath and the piling up of corpses. Suffice it to say this, David's Lord does not only deliver his people from sin, and the slow degradation that ends in divine judgment. He delivers the world and the future from the opposition and festering hostility of unreconciled enemies. Christian, listen. King David the Lord is bringing a salvation beyond imagination and beyond contesting. He sits at God's right hand until his enemies are his footstool. There is much still to be done. But this victory cannot be contested. Yes, the struggle is furious. No, there is no doubt. No negotiation. No switching to plan B. His scepter is sent forth among his enemies. I will also pass over questions of the timeline and plotting out the future. But a few observations are urgent. First, there's clearly a distance between the day of your power and the day of his wrath. That makes sense. The sins of God's elect were finally and fully punished some 2,000 years ago on the cross outside Jerusalem. But the sins of the reprobate will not be punished. There is patience hanging over them. Patience blooming around them until the last day. Seeing a difference, a distance between the, hour of your, the day of your power and the day of your wrath is not enough to simplistically draw the future in which we are living. More importantly, that 
difference in distance marks out the time of salvation. We must seek the lost. Second, urgent observation and thought of time and when. The Christian church is presently in a battle, not against flesh and blood and not with the weapons of this world. Surely the shattered kings and shattered chiefs of Psalm 110 are in the entourage of the powers and principalities. We've heard of that in Colossians. Those against whom we are urged to stand strong with prayer, faith, and the weapon of the word. If through us, Christ can shatter and pile up undue evil schemes and even horrific evil, we should not be surprised and we ought not to be timid. Thirdly and foundationally, the end may be hard to perceive, but the starting point is clear. Peter at Pentecost Hebrews some decades later, and all the New Testament trumpeting of Psalm 110 makes one point. This salvation and this victory began at the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for Psalm 110 to begin. We are not in winter. Christ has risen from cold death. I cannot pass over the last verse of the psalm. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. We are not in winter. We are in a, a new era. We are not in winter. Puritan writers took this statement as a firm affirmation of the humanity of David's Lord. He gets tired and must drink. Also, they might add, that spoke of Christ's humiliation the king stooping to drink from a creek. With confidence, I would offer something additional, more in keeping with the salvation beyond imagining and the victory beyond contest. The work in the battle are long. A warrior would need to quench the thirst of his exertion. But David's Lord will not return to camp. He will not stop with a half-victory, even knowing on a second day, a second campaign, he may finish his conquest. He barely pauses from his hard efforts for refreshment. Then he lifts his head to continue his victory. The resurrected Christ is unrelenting. He will not turn back. He will not be thwarted. Whatever we may posit about the day of your power and the day of his wrath, he has not only begun. He is saving his people and delivering the world. We are not in winter or even spring or summer. We are in a new era. We are in a new age. Christ has risen. We offer ourselves willingly. We are working to see what Jesus will do next. Christians hear this. David's Lord is bringing a salvation beyond imagination and a victory that cannot be contested. 
by the sun. Lord, let us be like stars in a dark universe holding out this word of hope. Make us shine with your son's great victory in us as we pray in his name. Amen.